On this episode of the podcast, I have Joshua Erickson back on to continue our series on the Jewish calendar and feast days. Now, as always, I strongly recommend that if you haven't listened to the previous episodes in this series, you go back and do that first. The reason is, is that these celebrations build on top of each other. Those episodes would be numbers 27, 28, and 30. This time around, Joshua Erickson and I break down Hanukkah. We dive into the history of the festival and how it is celebrated today. As we discuss these things, there are fascinating ties to Joseph Smith, as well as some pretty stark parallels for our day concerning Mormonism and even some fundamentalist prophecy. Stick around for that and more on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. So I just want to take a moment to thank you, the listener. When I started this podcast, I wasn't sure if anyone would really listen. Now, to my surprise, this thing has taken on a life of its own. And that's all due to you, the listener, spending your time here with me, and it means a great deal to me. Now, as a husband and father, I'm keenly aware of how important time is. It feels like there's just never enough of it. So when you are spending your time here listening to this podcast, I feel a responsibility to never waste your time. In that spirit, as this podcast has grown, I feel like I need to do you, the listener, justice. I want to continue to produce good content and upgrade the audio quality. That takes better equipment and better software, and that all takes money. Now, I've tried to advertise, but you'd be surprised. There's not a lot of people wanting to advertise on a Mormon fundamentalist podcast. I know, surprising, right? Now, if you want to help support the podcast, you can do that one of two ways. The first is go over to mormonrenegade.com and hit the donate tab. There you can make a one-time donation, or you can go ahead and set it up to be a monthly recurring donation. Your choice entirely. Now, option number two, because I'm a capitalist, if you want to head on over to mormonrenegade.com, click on the store button, you're going to find that we've got some new swag out. We got some t-shirts, we have a tote, we have cell phone cases, water bottles, coffee cups, we got a bunch of stuff and more is going to be on the way. So, if you feel like that's something you could do, again, head on over to Mormon Renegade and check all that stuff out. If you're not in that position to do so, I completely understand. We're all squeezed right now with high gas prices and high inflation. So, even if you can't, please keep listening and maybe keep the podcast in your prayers so we can continue to grow, produce good content, and better audio quality. Thank you. Listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Welcome back to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. As always, you can get a hold of me uh, either by email at mormonrenegade at gmail.com. You can also get a hold of me on uh, Instagram and Twitter and Getter under the handle Mormon Renegade. Also, we have a website up, and that's mormonrenegade.com, so go check that out. Well, Joshua, man, thanks for coming back on again. Glad to be here. Repeat offender. Repeat offender. That's all right. You can come back anytime you want, man. Yeah, I appreciate there's, the open invitation. Yeah, there's always a spot for you here, so don't don't worry about that. Oh, feel free to come down anytime. So we're going to talk about Hanukkah today. Mm-hmm. And everything in me, it was so hard not to want to... Uh, play the the Hanukkah song by M. Sandler before we got started. But uh, real quick, is this is this kind of the last holiday in the Jewish calendar? Uh, 
the no, the last one is going to be Purim. So Purim, okay. Yep. Before uh, before the New Year, which is before the uh, the ecclesiastical New Year, uh, which is uh, the first month when pa- when Passover is. So <clears throat> Purim is the is the last. In the gotcha, cycle. gotcha. So we got one more to do after this. I'm looking forward to that's that. right. One that's, more, and then we'll start. Yeah. I have no idea what that is. So that one will be really cool. Okay. Yeah. I have a little bit of of an idea on on what um, Hanukkah is, um, but probably not as much as you. So what's what's the history of Hanukkah? History of Hanukkah. So this there's a you know the Old Testament stops uh, about 400 years before the New Testament okay. begins. So there's there's this gap, which is called by historians the intertestamental period. And um, Hanukkah, the story of Hanukkah occurs in this intertestamental period. It's actually, um, <clears throat> you know, to go back to uh, Nebuchadnezzar's vision, he has this, or this his dream, right? Where he sees the statue with the gold head and the silver arms and chest and the brass belly and thighs and then the legs of iron and then the feet that are iron mixed with clay. Okay, <clears throat> and this story, uh, story of Hanukkah, takes place in, with the belly and the thighs of brass, really. Um, <clears throat> so, so was the bellies and the and the thighs of brass? What do those represent? And that represents the kingdom of Greece. Okay. So all of these, all of these things that Nebuchadnezzar saw and Daniel interpreted, these are all kingdoms that were going to occupy Jerusalem, basically, at one point or another, and start out with Nebuchadnezzar. He was the head of gold, which was Babylon. Um, and then the uh, the two the two silver arms were the Medes and the Persians. Okay. And then uh, who conquered Babylon, and then uh, <clears throat> and then they were conquered in turn by Greece, uh, which was the the brass. And then Greece was in turn conquered by Rome, of course, which was the iron. And so we Hanukkah takes place <clears throat> during that that time of Grecian. Occupancy. So That's right. Speak. So the Old Testament kind of uh, we get into the Babylonian captivity, and then in the Book of Daniel, he talks about you know the Medes and the Persians are there as well. Uh, but then the Old Testament goes quiet, and then we pick it back up with Rome being in charge of the Holy Land. Right. And so we kind of skip over the brass part of the sculpture. Yeah, we don't hear a lot about the the Grecian occupation. And I mean right. really realistically unless you've gotten into the book of Maccabees or something like that, it's right. almost it it's strange in the sense that especially to the Christian world and um I I would lump Mormons in with that there. It's almost a forgotten time period for us. It is. And uh the reason <clears throat> the reason why that is is because uh Christians, especially Protestants, only Protestants <laughs> have deleted uh, the Apocrypha from the Bible. Right. So I guess I should say a little bit about about the Apocrypha because the Apocrypha actually uh, comes about, as far as we know, uh, during this time. Um, most, of, most of the Bibles that we had, the King James Version and the NIV and the NASV and a bunch of uh, kind of modern translations – uh, maybe all modern, all the all the major modern translations. Anyway, um, <clears throat> they translate from what's called the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew version of the uh, the Old Testament. 
And, and it's actually surprisingly recent. So when you think about uh, the Hebrew Bible, I mean, this thing is, a, is thousands of years old, but uh, the copy that everything is translated from is, is basically goes back to the Leningrad Codex. <clears throat> the Leningrad Codex was made um, sometime around 1000 wow. AD. And so all our, all our Bibles go to this source that was uh, compiled in 1000 AD. So this this Grecian occupation of of the Holy Land is this just is it Alexander the Great who is it Yeah started with Alexander that's right Alexander was uh pretty amazing he actually had uh his father was Philip uh of Macedonia and um Philip had a few wives I think Alexander was from his fourth wife but when uh when she conceived she actually had a, this vision uh, like in a dream, in a dream, uh, a lightning bolt like struck her stomach. Wow! And from and from her stomach came this fire that like burned the whole world and then faded away. You know, and um, <clears throat> which of course, you know, Alexander. That's a lot to live up to. As, <laughs> as a big kid, shoes. yeah, <laughs> yeah, big shoes to fill. So, um, uh, Philip uh, was murdered, if I remember right, and Alexander came to power when he was just twenty years old. Wow. And his father had his father had aspirations to make to expand the the Grecian Empire, and uh, had those aspirations for his son Alexander, and he filled you know filled those shoes very proficiently. Let's say Alexander was amazing. Now, it, Maccabees, which talks about this Grecian occupation, if I'm not mistaken, it wasn't the the primary guy who was ruling the place at that time. Though wasn't Alexander? It was a guy named Correct. Antiochus Epiphanes, yeah, right? Boo! Yeah. Right. <clears throat> In my house, when everyone, when uh, anytime someone says Antiochus Epiphanes, and everyone everyone says boo, we do that here, except usually it's with Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> boo! But, yeah, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> but yes, but so so. Alexander, he he conquers the Holy Land. Alexander conquers a lot of ground. I mean, he's he's yeah. out. This this is not a homebody. This guy is out there, and he's That's right. he's going to town. But it's in my estimation, he was pretty hands off with the local population during he his was. time. Right, yeah. Alexander's time. He was actually um, as far as emperors go, was a fairly good guy. Right. Um, yeah. Josephus records. Um, his entrance into the Holy Land, and uh, the people in Jerusalem, the Jews, they uh, they knew that they were going to be incorporated, so yeah, into uh, um, the the Grecian uh, kingdom empire. And so, there's not really any use in putting up a fight, and they decided just to submit instead. And when Alexander uh, approached Jerusalem, basically. The high priest, whose name was uh, Jadua at the time, um, he's you know the, the the plan was everyone is going to uh, we're all going to be fasting and praying and everyone's going to put on their their white clothes and everyone's going to go out to the streets and like you know just bow down and welcome Alexander with uh, with celebration and stuff and so Alexander goes through the streets and he's just met by uh, you know all these people dressed in white and welcoming him and he gets up to the temple and the high priest comes out and he's 
all uh, you know dressed in his uh, priestly garments as well. And uh, the, the high priest uh, wore a, a crown on his turban that said holiness to the Lord across it in, in a, on a gold plate that would be wear on his head. <clears throat> and Alexander, when he saw the high priest wearing that, then it was brought to his mind, his memory about like a dream that he had had. He had had a dream that when he saw that, uh, that, uh, the high priest come out that right. he was supposed to like respect these people. And so, so he, um, um, so he just totally spared them and there was no, no bloodshed or anything. And he basically like supported the temple there. He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to contribute to the work you're doing. And right. everything went really well under, uh, Alexander. Now he, uh, he died at a young age, uh, right. took him, he was 32 or 33. I think I can't remember. Basically he, um, like I said, he uh, he became king at twenty and started his camp his worldwide campaign, which took about a decade. He basically conquered the whole known world and was basically undefeated in battle. And this is actually the cool thing about uh, about Hanukkah. Is there's um, it's not one of the uh, it's not one of the feasts that the Lord commands uh, Israel to keep, you know, like Passover and Tabernacles and so on. Um, but it is talked about in the Old Testament, most, most notably in uh, the book of Daniel. Right. So I'm going to read just a little bit about Daniel here, or from Daniel. Um, this is in uh, Daniel chapter 8. Let's see. Sorry. Um, so I lifted up, this is Daniel speaking. I lifted up my eyes, he's having this vision. I saw and there stood before the river a ram, which had two horns and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other and the higher came up last. And uh, so he actually goes on um, later on to uh, an interpretation of this dream is given. And the ram, this is in verse 20, the ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. So the Medes and the Persians. And um, I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward uh, so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering uh, this ram, behold, a he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river. And the ram said unto him, uh, ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram. And he was moved with choler against him and smote the ram and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him. And there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore, the goat waxed very great. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And for it came up four notable ones towards the four winds of heaven. So uh, later on um, uh, in verse 21, it says, The rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. So this, is, this is Alexander the Great. Okay. He was the, uh, the, the goat was Greece, and the horn, the one horn that the goat had was Alexander. And he <clears throat> says he flew across the world like it looked like the goat was flying because his feet didn't even touch the ground. <clears throat> and this is you know, the way that Alexander conquered the world, basically. But um, 
but he died at a young age. He was he came down with some kind of sickness. Um, uh, you know, historians speculate whether that was some natural illness or whether he'd been poisoned. Right. Uh, we don't know. Um, <clears throat> but he died, and when he died, uh, basically the the kingdom was split into four parts, uh, which is which Daniel right. predicts here. He says the one horn was broken off, and then four horns came up in its place. So is it Antiochus Epiphanes? He was that- not. Yes. Well, he's comes next. Um, and out of one of those four horns came a little horn, which waxed exceedingly great uh, toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven and cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. <clears throat> Yea, uh, he magnified himself even to the prince of hosts and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And it goes on, it says um, in verse 13, um, talks about the transgression of desolation and how long would the, uh, the sanctuary be trodden underfoot. And, um, and this, is, this is talking about Antiochus Epiphany. So he, he was, so the, the four branches of the Grecian kingdom were basically Syria, okay. which is where Antiochus comes from. And then there was Egypt, um, and then there was uh, Turkey and Greece. Okay, so Antiochus Epiphanes is not not Grecian. He's he's Syrian. Well, it's the uh, it's the Greek Syrian Empire. Okay. So and okay. then in Egypt it was the Greek uh, oh, okay. Egyptian, gotcha. like it was the land of Egypt, but under Greek control. Okay. So Alexander he comes through, and. He just basically cleans up. I mean, the, nobody really stands a chance against no, him. In fact, all like dominoes. Yeah, and and real, really, I, I from my understanding, about the time he's halfway done, most other kingdoms are like, you know, he seems cool as long as we don't screw with him. So yeah. let, let's just let's just understand this is happening, and then let's see if we can't just play nice with him, and then yeah. maybe he will play nice, which seems to be the, the, he the case. He did, he did. right? Yeah. To the point he leaves the Jews alone in Jerusalem and says, you do your thing, you're you're going to pay your taxes to me, but other than that, I'm going to leave you alone. Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah, exactly so right. it, it goes along well there. And then he dies, and it's amazing this is all foretold <clears throat> by Scripture, too. I think that's really cool. That's, it is amazing. And then... From there, Antiochus Epiphanes comes into play. That's right. And and let's talk about him a little bit. What's his deal? He's um, he's a really bad man. <laughs> he actually uh, and he has a as many of these emperors do. Uh, he has a god complex, and um, his name is his name is Antiochus, which is the name of his father. <clears throat> but uh, like the uh, the title that he takes on is uh, Theos Epiphanes. For which is and just Epiphanes for short, but his name is Antiochus, God manifest, like God has appeared. That was that was his that was his Antiochus the God has appeared. That was the name that he gave himself. You know, I thought about guys like that, and the one thing I'll say is they have to be motivated because again, that's a lot to live up to, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, oh, yeah I don't, I have no desire to be that that worshipful. But but I do find it interesting that this same pattern emerges time and time again, which is you might have one really benevolent, really good king or leader that really loves his people, 
But there's no guarantee about that second one. Amen. Right? And and so I I, I wanted to point that out because it's something that we continue to see, right? Yeah, absolutely. Is that the one guy might be totally cool, but the guy behind him, well, that guy, we don't know. And that, it could be bad. That is the reason we don't give the good guy all right. the power. Exactly. Exactly. If we can help it. <laughs> it absolutely. There's only mm-hmm. been a couple of guys I can think of that took that kind of power and then returned it. One was Washington, and then George. the other was was and and Lincoln didn't even go fully back, but he gave most of it back after mm-hmm. the Civil War, and and so those men are extremely rare, and once that extremely power rare. gets installed in somebody, it's there forever, and and you can see we that have learned by sad experience, yeah, and, and we, disposition of we can see that men. with Antiochus Epiphanes oh, to a yeah. T. So he comes into power. When does he start really messing with? With uh, the Israelites, yeah, he, uh, you know, this is this story takes place um, in the one sixties BC. So um, <clears throat> he's uh, he has he has ambitions. Actually, all of these all of these generals, the, the four generals um, that uh, you know, these four kingdoms that kind of come out of Alexander's Greece, they all fight with each other. For supremacy, constant like generation after generation, they're having wars with each other, um, trying to kind of put back together Alexander's kingdom, which never happens. Uh, and eventually, Rome comes along and puts a big nope on the whole thing. <clears throat> and Ro- Rome does it. Rome does succeed, but but uh, you know these little Greek, uh, smaller Greek kingdoms, they never do. So Antiochus um, Epiphanes, he's he's got Egypt in his sights, and of course. But between Syria uh, in the north and then Egypt in the south, uh, the kingdom of Israel is is right there uh, in between. And so, um, and sometimes, sometimes uh, you know, the Greek Egyptians, you know, they are in charge, and sometimes the the Syrian Greeks are in charge, and and uh, Israel's kind of back and forth there. And uh, Daniel talks about that too. He talks about the the king of the north and the king of the south, and these um, right intrigues that are going to happen there. So he's, um, so Antiochus is actually, uh, goes down to Egypt and, um, he actually, uh, beats up on Ptolemy, uh, who's the, the king right. in Egypt. All of the, all of the kings in Egypt are named Ptolemy. <clears throat> so, uh, he beats him up, um, and he goes down again another time to, uh, to battle. And when he's down there, uh, the second time, I believe the second, the second campaign he's down there, there's a single uh, Roman uh, gentleman who is, has a message from uh, the Roman Senate. And um, basically, uh, this single Roman uh, messenger basically tells Antiochus, uh, we want you to leave Egypt. And, you know, and, uh, and, Egypt is no longer going to be a concern of yours. And we would like you to uh, tell us, um, give us your intentions towards Egypt, you know, now that you know our intentions. And Antiochus says he'll have to discuss it with his council. And uh, the Roman uh, guy takes, you know, a, a stick or a sword or I don't know, whatever, and, and draws a circle around Antiochus in the sand and says, um, before you leave the circle, you'll give an answer to the Roman Senate. And Antiochus is not very happy about this, but realizes that um, 
he'll probably just leave Egypt alone from now on. Yeah, because he really doesn't have a choice, right? Because Rome is at the height of its power, and it's got a lot of power. It's got money. Yes. It can fund these excursions. That's right. For for in perpetuity, and so Antiochus recognizing that the the Grecian Empire is already fractured, uh, he doesn't have the the wherewithal to go toe to toe with Rome. That's right, not at all. And so, interesting thing is is back up in Jerusalem at this time, and this is in. Um, uh, I believe this is in Second Maccabees. First and Second Maccabees, they they overlap in a lot of their um, um, their uh, storytelling. Um, so let me just go there. All right, so I found it. So it's in Second Maccabees, chapter five. It's interesting. While Antiochus was down in Egypt, uh, the folks up in Jerusalem actually had this collective vision. And is reported. Um, I'll read. I'll just read it here. Uh, this is the this is the good news translation uh, of the apocrypha here. So, about this time, Antiochus the fourth made a second attack against Egypt. For nearly forty days, people all over Jerusalem saw visions of cavalry troops in gold armor charging across the sky. The riders were armed with spears, and their swords were drawn. They were lined up in battle. Uh, against one another, attacking and counterattacking. Shields were clashing. There was a rain of spears and arrows flew through the air. All different kinds of armor and uh, the golden bridles of the horses flashed in the sunlight. And everyone in the city prayed that these visions might be a good sign. Hmm. So they, it's uh, it's actually a really interesting vision. Now they didn't they didn't know what this meant, but there was, um, you know, when they said it was a good sign, they they hoped that that meant that Antiochus was had been defeated. Right. Now Antiochus was kind of defeated, but he uh, was certainly not killed. And that was kind of the rumor that had um, gone on. And, um, and when Antiochus made his way back up North, he found, uh, he found Jerusalem kind of in disarray and people were, people weren't necessarily celebrating. um, But there were, there was because of the rumors of his death, um, there was kind of some riots and um, some things happening in Jerusalem, and that did not make him happy. That that they kind of assumed that he had been killed in battle. So was he was he mistreating Israel prior? No. to this episode. So no. So this is very much the impetus for yes. him being like. So he was in a bad mood from yeah, his interaction I, I was, with Rome. I was just going to say to put everything into context. This is a guy who just got humiliated. That's right. Right. He's like. I have my army, and my army is going to destroy something. Right. And I've been thwarted in Egypt, so. So then he finds the Jews who who never really have a, at least since the time of David, a really good standing army. Yeah. I, I've often looked at, at ancient Israel and thought they have a lot of great special forces, so to speak. We see that <laughs> yeah. where, where there's yeah, there's small men and stuff. Yeah, yeah, there there's small bands that that are really good at at, at kind of counterinsurgency sort of stuff. But then you have you don't have the standing army where you're just going to go toe to toe with right. somebody, and so they're probably a, a, a good target to take some of that frustration out on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or at least that's how Antiochus is looking at it. Like that's exactly. I just got I just got humiliated from this point forward. I'm ruling with an iron fist. Yeah. Now he had started uh, some of the mystery. It's, it's it's kind of a complicated story because there was 
um, there was Greek interference uh, and Greek oppression, which hadn't really started um, until this event. But there was also this internal factions because there was um, there was a group of Jews who were Hellenized. So they loved Greek culture and were wanting um, Israel to just become, to fully embrace the Greekness of everything. Just to assimilate. To assimilate. Yeah, that's exactly the word. And so the story of uh, the Maccabees and Hanukkah is, on one sense, um, an international thing where they're fighting against the Greeks, but there's also a civil war that's going on simultaneously. They're fighting with each other um, over uh, over whether or not to uh, we're going to just accept Greek customs and laws and abandon the Torah and uh, the law and the God of our fathers. So before we dive too much into Maccabees and who they are, let's set the the stage for what Antiochus Epiphanes does. What's the if you're if you're a Torah believing Jew of that time, what's Antiochus Epiphanes doing within Israel, Israeli society? So at the uh, at up until this point, there had been, like I said, there had not been the kind of overt oppression, um, but uh, there was all kinds of intrigue. Actually, the uh, the <clears throat> the high priest, the position of high priest, and the whole the whole Jewish priesthood just became utterly corrupt. So um, there was actually the the guy the guy who should have been the guy who should have been the high priest. His name was Onias the third, and uh, he was actually uh, deposed. There was a, a another guy named uh, Jason. Um, his name his name was actually uh, Yeshua or Jesus, hmm. but he changed his name to Jason. Because he wants to be Greek, and he actually uh, bribed, or not bribed, but uh, yeah, bribed, I guess, offered Antiochus money if Antiochus would forcibly uh, give him the position of high priest over Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So uh, Antiochus did that, and then um, and then Jason was in charge, and he basically did not. Onias the Third um, was against the Hellenization, and Jason was in favor of it, and so Jason kind of started to do all the Greek things. He built a, a gymnasium there, you know, where they would all, you know, play their Olympic games and stuff in the nude, you know. Right, which is, yeah. And <clears throat> you, in, in my reading, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, this is a time where Epiphany seems to be saying, look, you're going to Hellenize. You are going. Not yet, but it is. It's getting to that point. It's already, right? yeah. And, you know, this is kind of, this is how, um, I think this is this is how governments work, right? There's there's these uh, social changes that start to creep in, and when there's you know when they get fifty percent support or something, right? Then they enforce it, and that's kind of what was happening. I guess you could say is that there was this, um, and not a required but just a naturally occurring uh, trend in society to adopt Hellenistic ways, and then there's enough support, and also Antiochus is pissed off at those who are not voluntarily doing it, that right. he says, we're going to uh, make this compulsory. Yeah. One of the reasons I love the story of, of, of the Maccabees and Hanukkah is because 
I think there are some echoes in there, if not some direct talk about protecting your beliefs. Oh, absolutely. And I find that we might be coming to a time that's very similar in the sense of you're you're going to adopt this new society. And I I think we need to look at at Maccabees, not necessarily for for their violence, but for their – because I don't think we're at that time yet. Right? Mm-hmm. I want to make that very clear. But I think we do need to be just as resolute about holding on to our culture and, and to our God and to our religion. Because it, we're right there. And we saw that. And this is why this episode probably won't go on YouTube. But <laughs> um, we saw something very similar with the the vaccine mandate, right? You're going to comply. Absolutely. You're going to comply. Let's talk a, a little bit about what Antichias does in terms of the temple, the yeah. kosher dietary laws, right. because I think there are some significant parallels there. So um, he he just, he kind of destroys um, – well, there's some intrigue there between Jason, as I said, who kind of bribed, uh, paid, you know, paid for the position of high priest. He actually sends uh, – one of his guys, whose name is Menelaus, who's not even of the tribe of um, Levi, he's a Benjamite, sends him to go make a payment. And Menelaus um, takes the opportunity to outbid Jason and says, hey, I've got all this money, plus I'll give you more when we go back. If you send soldiers back with me and put me in as the high priest, Antiochus says, sounds great. And um, they're part of the part of the squabble that caused uh, that. Um, made Antiochus lose his temper was this squabble between Jason and Menelaus. <clears throat> but uh, anyway, Antiochus puts Menelaus uh, in position as high priest, and then Menelaus, in order to pay the bribe that he had promised, goes into the temple and takes some of the temple treasures, basically, to pay for his new position as high priest. Okay, um, now um, Antiochus is also realizing um, that there's there's a bunch of Jews um, and probably maybe some people in other parts of his kingdom um, who don't really like assimilating. And so he makes a law that uh, everyone in my kingdom is going to be Greek in their customs, you know, in their dress and in their worship. And everyone will worship the same gods. And, um, and he basically made this, he... I mean, the, the parallels are, are remarkable because here we have a, a tyrant who wants basically a one world government. He wants, he wants everyone to be good global citizens. Yep. And, uh, the Jews say, uh, we are not going to do that. Some of them anyway, uh, those who resist. And he says, yes, you will, uh, you will not do anything detectably Jewish. Any any detectable any detectably Jewish thing you do will be punished by death and torture. So yeah, you are not allowed to keep the Sabbath. You are not allowed to observe Passover. You are not allowed to have the scriptures with you. If you get caught with the scriptures, we will destroy those and then torture and kill you. You're not allowed to circumcise your children. You're not allowed. You must eat unclean things. Not only that, you must eat unclean things that have been offered to uh, the Greek gods. So like doubly uh, awful. And it was, um, 
And he basically reigned with blood and horror, uh, to borrow a phrase, and uh, <clears throat> and made a, a a concerted effort to stamp out the Jewish religion, if yeah. not the people. I read a book, and it, it wasn't like the book of Maccabees, but it was a book that was kind of commentary mm. on the Maccabees. It was told from a kind of like a story kind of perspective. Yeah. And the things he does are absolutely atrocious. Um, he he debases the temple. Yeah, he, I didn't you know, get to that. Oh, yeah, go, but, sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to see No, no, you're fine. Uh, yeah, he, it's, it's, it's awful because he actually um, – yeah, the, the temple is also also must be debased, and um, he sets up. He actually sets up. He he actually captures the temple on the fifteenth of Kislev, which is the the ninth biblical month. And um, and then uh, after he captures the temple, he sets up uh, a he sets up an altar to Zeus, like on top, over yep. over the the altar to Jehovah. And um, and also inside the temple, he sets up an idol to Zeus. And uh, the accounts of it say that the uh, this statue of Zeus actually uh, was a self-portrait of Antiochus. No, of right? course it was. Yeah. This is amazing. Which is um, which is all uh, so so. Then on the on the twenty fifth of uh, Kislev, he. Um, he actually does what Daniel calls and what Maccabees calls the abomination of desolation. And he actually offers swine to Zeus on the, the, the altar in the temple and then takes the, the blood of the pig and spreads it in the Holy of Holies and over everything in the temple and just totally defiles it. And, <clears throat> and basically the temple, the temple just becomes this like, bar and brothel yeah they set up like prostitution is there and they just have drinking parties and um orgies, orgies and yeah. they just are just praying and offering uh to these idols and stuff in the temple and it's just everything is everything is just utterly filthy and defiled and desolate and um so so that is what uh, that is what Daniel refers to, as I said, as the abomination of desolation. And Jesus talks about this mm-hmm. in the New Testament, in uh, like Matthew twenty four. Uh, before I get to that, it's an interesting thing about about the scriptures. You know, when we we, we talk a lot, I think, um, in our meetings and in our study, and you know, you read commentaries and books and stuff, and um, there's a lot of talk about types and shadows of Christ. And a lot of the a lot of the ancient prophets, you know, pieces of their life kind of match, um, you know, things that the Savior would do. You know, for example, um, you know, if I if I if I say uh, there was this uh, there was this promised child that was born, and there was a wicked king who wanted to kill the promised child, so he killed all the killed all the babies, but uh, but this chosen child was saved by. Um, going to Egypt, um, and then who am I talking about? You're right. You're talking about Herod, uh, right? Or, or I'm talking about Moses, right? And the things that happened with Pharaoh, right? Right. And Moses. So Moses's infancy kind of uh, right, right mirrors um, 
Jesus' infancy. Right. So so Moses in that way is a type of Christ. Christ. And so <clears throat> now the scriptures talk about the Antichrist as well, the anti-Messiah. And uh, and there are types and shadows of the Antichrist as well. And Antiochus Epiphanes is is that. He is perhaps the strongest type and shadow of the true Antichrist, which is which is yet to come. And there are others too, other uh, other types and shadows. And he doesn't stop at just defiling the temple. He he, I, I read one account where he would go out to kind of the outlying areas of Jerusalem, Galilee being one of them, and like finding the rabbi, and cooking up a pig and being like, "You're going to eat this, or I'm going to kill your family." That's right. Yeah, and, the, and it's uh, it was a, it was a kind of a a double edged thing. It's like if you don't. Yeah, then you and your family will be tor- not just killed, but tortured. I mean, there's in uh, the book of Second Maccabees, in particular, there's there's several several of the martyrdoms that are uh, detailed in gruesome detail. Um, and there's there's kind of two famous sets. There's one um, this old man, elderly man named uh, Eleazar, and it's this very th- thing. They they go out to all the outlying cities and they set up pagan altars and they offer something to to Zeus or whatever and they say everyone come and partake, so we can all be one you know so we can so we can all be good global citizens and be you know part of this Greek family, and uh, and they would often go to like you said the rabbi or to the the like the respected members of those communities and say. You come up and go first because then we'll get less resistance, right? And um, and if you do, then we'll shower you with gifts and um, praise, and you'll get the title friend of the king, and uh, you know we'll give you we'll give you a reward. And if you don't, then you know then you're going to die. And Eleazar says, um, "No, I will. I refuse." And um, the officials say they they actually tell him they say, "Okay." Let's do this. Uh, why don't you bring your own clean food and come up and and just eat that, but be but pretend to partake of this sacrifice to Zeus. And but but you don't actually have to. But we just want you to set an example so that everyone else will do it. And Eliezer basically says, "There's no way I would do that because all these young people are watching me and like." Their blood will be upon my head, you know, if I right. do this wicked thing, right? And so <clears throat> he gets tortured and killed. And then um, the other one is um, there's this there's a mother with her seven sons, and they're all like tortured and killed one at a time while the rest of them are watching, and they just and they just all um, refuse, and and it just it it's like gory stuff, you know. They cut off their hands and feet like one at a time you know right. do you will you accept you know zeus whatever cut out their tongue and then they like roast them alive in a giant frying pan and stuff like that yeah horrible stuff yeah and and i think here's probably a good point to stop for a second and draw some interesting parallels right on this part of the story go for it we just got done going through a process where again going back to the pandemic you will submit to this. You will do this. And you're going to do it to be a good global citizen that is exactly and to be right. united. And one of the things that, that bugs me the most is when uh, folks in power talk about unity for unity's sake. 
right? We can even see spots in the Old Testament where the Lord wasn't a fan of just unity for unity's sake. Think about the Tower of Babel, right? Where the people were all of one heart and one mind, and the Lord's like, ooh, Ooh. trouble. Now, if we're all united on godly principles, that's a different animal. But when it's unity for political purposes, for somebody's ego, yeah. On wrong principles. This is the this is the kingdom of the Antichrist, right. which is always in opposition. Right. And so we just got done going through that. The other thing that I'm going to say, and this is going to get real spicy. I like spicy. Uh, we just saw last week the church come out and throw its support behind gay marriage. Oh, boy. I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. I'm, yeah. I'm going to go there. <laughs> I'm going to go back to when I left the LDS church a few years back. And I had a very candid conversation with my higher up, who was the son of a general authority, a 70. Okay. Not going to name names. All right. But he asked me a question. He's like, why are you so concerned about the temple changes? What is it about it that really bugs you? And I said, you are paving the way for... And I used the exact term, uh, the abomination of desolation. That's right. And he asked what that was. And I said, What is that? Yeah. Mm. But in 10 years, and this is what I said there. I said, In 10 to 20 years, I think you're going to see gay marriages inside the temple. Yeah. The church did say this is, quote, the way forward. Right. Exactly. You had Dallin H. Oaks just a year ago. I remember because I was Christmas shopping with my wife where I read the story where Dallin H. Oaks said, we're going to have to surrender some things in order to have peace. What left is there at this point? Oh, there's a few things I can think of. And and so I think we're at a point now where they may not be killing people, but they'll cancel you. They'll erase you that way. Yeah. And so there's some very interesting parallels that are happening right now to this. Yeah. And it's either you will be a good global citizen or we'll cancel you. We'll erase you from culture. And with the advent of ESG, with the advent of a digital potentially dollar. a digi- digital dollar, that time's going to come. And, and I feel like people at this point need to start preparing for such things um, where, where we can maybe come together and work together. Um, and put some of our differences aside because we're going to need to rely on each other. There's going to have to be something parallel that's happening if we're going to resist yeah. this. And and I think we see that bared out in the story of Maccabees as well, right? You get the feeling that there is something parallel happening when the Maccabees roll, is. roll when the Maccabees roll up on site, right? It's already been been established in there. There's so much uh, prophetic. Um, it's it's maybe the most prophetic of the holidays. Yeah. Because um yeah, just the the things that Daniel talks about and Jesus as well. Jesus of course in Matthew 24 and we have we have some additional things in uh, Joseph Smith Matthew there but Jesus basically says when you see the abomination of desolation mentioned by Daniel, then you'll know that the temple here in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and all that and he and he talks about he predicts the the destruction of the temple that happened in uh, seventy mm-hmm. A.D. Right, 
um, with Vespian, I think, and and Titus was his yep. son who actually actually did the deed, <clears throat> and uh, that was that was foretold in Daniel as well. Um, Daniel talks about the the fourth. He talks about um, talks about these kingdoms as like these metals uh, in the statue, but he also talks about these beasts. And he talks about this fourth beast, which is Rome, and it has ten horns. And um, anyway, and the tenth one, which was Titus, is the one that is gonna, who is also a little horn. So he's also this type right. of uh, the Antichrist who destroys the temple. Um. Anyway, but Jesus says uh, in Matthew twenty-four, there he says, "You're going to see the uh, abomination of desolation, and then you know you're going to flee." But he says. But the abomination of desolation is going to happen again yeah. in the future, and so watch out for that. And um, and I think there's, I mean, there's been multiple fulfillments of it, and and I don't know that we were definitely. I don't even know that there's one more. I think there's probably going to be at least several more. One, um, one in the temple that's going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem for sure, and I think also uh, the temples of the Latter Day Saints too are going to see this abomination. A, an abomination of desolation, and I think the uh, gay marriage is going to gay ceiling is going to be a a likely candidate. Yeah, yeah. the The only place I could see I may have been wrong there is I misjudged the time. I honestly Possibly. thought yeah. you know ten to twenty years. I I wonder if we're that far away at this point because it's moving with breathtaking speed and it doesn't seem to be slowing down at all. Yeah, closer than we've ever been. That's what I like to say. Yep. People can make all kinds of predictions and prophecies, and you know, I mean, there's there's numbers. There's these days and years and times and stuff in Daniel and in Revelation. And I suck at the game pin the tail on the yeah, apocalypse. I always miss it. It's closer than it's ever been. That's what I'm sure. Yep. And we can all see that, right? Everything's accelerating. Yep, absolutely. So, I, yeah, I find those parallels very interesting. But, all right, let's move on. So so we've painted the picture of what's going on in Jerusalem under under Antiochus. And it is a horror show of massive. Horror show. Yeah. Massive All in the name of the... Uh, Unity, unity, and getting along, and yep. everyone being friends. Right? It's the it's the most brutal friendship. It is. Um, that's. Yeah. I, I've often said those relationships are like dysfunctional, abusive marriages. Right? Someone's getting beat up, yeah. and someone says, "If you would just do as I tell you, I wouldn't have to do this. This that's, is your fault." And so, oh I, yeah, I've that's, often said it, it resembles an abusive marriage quite a bit. That's ex- exactly it. So. When do the Maccabees roll up on site? Okay, this is let's, when. Let's talk about the Maccabees first. Who are they? They're yeah, a family, right? They're a family. Yeah. Um, now the the name Maccabee is actually well, there's actually uh, a man. He's a priest. His name is uh, Matisiahu or uh, Mattathias is uh, like his Greek ver- Greek name, and he has five sons, and one of them is named Judah, who also has the nickname Maccabee. Um, which means the hammer, which is a pretty, that's pretty, a bad, that's a badass. Name. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> yeah. And, um, uh, basically th- this, this nickname that he has eventually applies to the whole family. Uh, th- this whole family is also called the, called the Hasmoneans. Hasmonean is the, the name of like the grandfather, like Mattathias's father or grandfather. I can't remember at the moment, but but they anyway they become the the Hasmonean dynasty is this this family or the Maccabees also they're known by. So uh, these Greek officials they come they're going out to the various communities outside of Jerusalem and they go to the town of Modin, which is where Mattathias and his family live. And the same kind of thing they build they set up the altar there and they offer the swine to Zeus and they off, they 
tell Mattathias to come up and because he's respected elder in this community. And if he, you know, will partake first, then they will be friends with the king and get all these presents and perks. And but if not, then you know, the bad things will happen. And Mattathias says, No, I never will. You know, I'm not, I never uh, <clears throat> turn my back on the covenant that my father's made, you know, with our God. And like while he's giving this speech, there's another priest in the town who like walks up in front of everyone and, um, and just goes ahead and, and uh, partakes of the, the offering, you know, maybe even offers, offers and partakes right in front of everyone. And Mattathias is so incensed. It's, it's kind of a, it's kind of like uh, Phineas mm-hmm. in the old Testament um, where he runs a lance through the right. What's his name? Aiken, I think. No, no, it's not Aiken. Can't remember his name. Anyway, there's that. Uh, you know right. the story. He yep. brings the uh, Moabite prostitutes into his tent, basically. <clears throat> anyway, he does. He goes and uh, earns earns the priesthood forever. Uh, says by uh, you know skewering these uh, these uh, evildoers, but so Mattathias uh, basically pulls out his sword and goes and kills the uh the other priest the other jewish priest who had just uh done this wicked thing and then kills the greek official and you know his sons they pull out their swords and they, there's a there's a few soldiers there and they basically go to war clean house yeah. and then they and then they destroy the the altar like push it over and then run away and into the hills and mattathias basically says everyone who values the covenant like follow me you know. Yeah, and and that's the beginning of the insurgency, right? And then they start an insurgency. That's right. Yep. They go up in the mountains, and um, <clears throat> and people hear about what had just happened, and and I'm sure a lot of people were relieved, you know, that someone finally did something, so that uh, so that we can put an end to this insanity. Actually, uh, interesting. Speaking of insanity, um, <clears throat> uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, like a, he had kind of an, a nickname, which was Epimenes. Which is kind of a play on words, but Epimenes means uh, like madman, so oh, okay. <clears throat> insane. So, so that's what he was called. <clears throat> um, yeah. So, um, no. Matt- Mattathias dies not too much later, like after this whole thing starts. But he he dies, and he and he basically sp- says uh, um, one of uh, one of his sons, um, I think it was Simon. Simon, he's going to be kind of in charge of things generally, but Judah uh, Maccabee, he's going to be the general. He's going to be in charge of the army and he's do whatever he says. So I, I read something, and I don't know if this is something that, that, that you know about, but and this has been years ago. This has been over a decade ago when I read about about the Maccabees. They, but before this goes down, they're kind of known around town, so to speak, as kind of rowdy kids. I probably probably I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. There there was some oral tradition that that you know they they're kind of the guys who in today's society are overall good guys but they're a little rough around the edges. They'd be the guy who you'd see at church and would definitely be living the commandments but maybe pushing things a little yeah. bit, right? Yeah. Some louder music being played and just <laughs> right. just rowdy. They're 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 a different breed so to yeah. speak. Yeah, not clean shaven. Not clean shaven. They're they they're kind of marching to their own drum, but yet very, very adherent to the to the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. The, the kind of people that you want to be your friend, actually. 
Yeah, probably the guy you want in a fight is kind yeah, of the vibe you get. Absolutely. Is, is they, they were kind of always itching, and I know that that was one of the things that this historian and author kind of brought out is that they were kind of known for getting into some fist fights. They, they didn't seem to shy away a whole bunch from – no, they did. From let's let's throw down a little bit just out of fun more than less. And then they found somebody that really got their ire up. So it, yeah. as as dictators do, <clears throat> they didn't necessarily account for every member of that population. And and now you have the Maccabees. So what happens once once they run up in the hills? So they run up the, the hills. The dad dies. Yeah. They're um there's actually uh, several pockets of these of this resistance. People hear about and uh, people run up into the mountains in different places. Of course, Judea is just mountainous country, so there's plenty of places. But uh, in one instance, um, uh, there's this group of people up in the mountains, and the Greeks come up on uh, the Sabbath. And they're like, hey, come out. Um, come out and eat the, you know, you know, pay homage to Zeus with along with the rest of us, or else we're going to wipe you out and um they're like in caves and stuff and uh, they they basically say we're not we're not going to come out and do that and you know leave us alone we're we're trying to be we're trying to keep the sabbath and uh so the greeks just go and slaughter them and they put up no resistance because they don't want to it's just a this kind of the pendulum is swinging the other way they they want to have like this radical adherence to super strict adherence to the law because um, that's what they feel like is going to be the antidote, right? So um, it's interesting too. Uh, so anyway, the uh, the Greeks, um, the Greeks, they just, they kill like, I can't remember, one one to 3,000 people, something like that, if I remember right. Anyway, several hundred at least. And they just wipe out these people who offer no resistance um, on the Sabbath. And Matt, Mattathias is like, okay, that just happened. Um and we cannot let that happen again. We're not we're not going to go out to battle on the Sabbath, but if they come to us, we are going to fight even on the Sabbath. And they make that their policy. And um and basically they start having these battles and they and at first they're kind of this ragtag band and not they don't even all have weapons. Like they have like, you know, pitchforks and right. kitchen knives, you know. And uh but they end up defeating one Greek army after another. And then, you know, then they're, then they get armor and shields and swords and, um, Judah, uh, himself, he, um, you know, the first, the first Syrian general, Greek Syrian general that comes, comes against them. He actually takes his sword and uses that as his sword. The rest of the time, it's very, it's kind of David and Goliath esque, you know, takes the sword and, kind of Nephi with Laban's sword becomes this like symbol of his generalship and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and his uh, authority in the army anyway. And um, so like to everyone's surprise and, and to uh, Antiochus's dismay, um, eventually they, they win their independence. Okay. Let me stop you there for a second because I see another parallel here that I, that I want to point out. And that is oftentimes we we tend to look at ourselves and think, should we do something, right? Now, I'm not talking <clears throat> violence. Let's just put this in the context of the gospel. Should should I should I do something? And the and, and the thought always creeps in. You're just one person, or you're just one family. 
And right. what 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 difference can you make? It always starts with one. People forget that there was a large portion of this country who were loyal to the king. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. And it, not everybody was on board about going to war against England for independence. Not even close. It was, it was Sam a group. Adams. Yeah, it was one dude who first questioned, and from there it caught fire. That's right. And so I, I guess that's something that we have to keep in mind. Yeah, you're right. You're one person. You're one family. But you might be the match that lights the fire. Yeah, and there will be matches that don't. Right. And so if you're feeling that pull, do something. Open your mouth. Say something. But don't stand by. I get that it's risky. I understand that very clearly. Uh, And and I'm not going to reveal – Reveal it, but there's a price to be paid for doing the right thing. Yeah. And um, we got to be willing to take that step and just open our mouths and talk. So, and, and, and I just saw that as a parallel that at some point we need to, to talk. Yeah, that's absolutely uh, the case. Like I said, there was, there was plenty of people who just suffered martyrdom. Mm-hmm. You know, the Iliés are in the, and the the mother with her seven sons; those are the the most famous ones. And um, there's there's two things that kind of there's this theme this theme through uh, the books of Maccabees um, for for those who are righteous and wanting to keep the covenant. Uh, the two themes are <clears throat> one: uh, we have brought this on ourselves, and it is it is by our own our own wickedness as a nation. And so the remedy to that is to uh, return, to repent. And even, even if God continues to punish, uh, they know that if they repent, that the God's punishment will not last forever because we're his people and he's, right. he's punishing us to correct us. And it's a yep. good, and it's a, it's a necessary thing for us to return. And so that's one thing is that there's this, this sense that, um, that the problems are of their own making, and and they're to blame. So they don't have, they don't blame Antiochus. He's like an instrument being that God is using to punish them for their own sins. Okay, and as a nation, a, yeah. And that's such a powerful state of mind because when you say, "What's my role in this?" Well, all of a sudden you're now empowered to make changes. That's right. To get back, right? right. So that's owning exactly it right. a little bit. And then the other thing is, uh, there's this theme throughout that. Um, this strong, strong uh, belief in the resurrection, and that even if we die, we are we are we will die and obtain a better resurrection. Yep, and and that's it. And we just have faith in that, and uh, that will that carries us through and allows us to. Uh, actually, I was I was going to quote earlier. Now's a good time. Um, actually, it's, I'll, I'll go back to the uh, to the apocrypha. Um, some of the some of the reasons why the apocrypha was taken out, uh, people will say, people will say that um, uh, that the like the New Testament never quotes from uh, the apocrypha, which is not true. All right, and they'll say, well, uh, even if it does quote, like Jesus never quotes, like maybe the, like Paul quotes from it, but Jesus never does, which is also not true. And they'll say, and, you know, the apocrypha never. There's never. There's nothing in the apocrypha where 
as a prophet who says, thus saith the Lord, but is also not true. So <clears throat> anyway, here's just one, uh, one example. Uh, this is Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, there's all these lists of all these um, trials and accomplishments that people um, uh, you know, achieved or overcame because of their faith. And in uh, 30, uh, 35, it says, Women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better re uh, resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover the bonds, uh, moreover of bonds and imprisonment, uh, stone sawn asunder, and all that. But anyway, this uh, the verse there, verse thirty-five, especially um, tortured so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Like this is this is universally like everyone, you know, Bible scholars realize that this is a, an allusion to Second Maccabees when it talks about the woman. Uh, with her seven sons and right. their whole motivation is to uh, obtain this better resurrection. Um, and so this is, this is actually another reason, and this will be interesting to Mormons too. Another reason why the Apocrypha is, was removed is because um, Martin Luther and a lot of the other reformers did not like some of the things in there, especially second Maccabees. And this is something I brought up with, with Ken Peterson when we were talking about the Apocrypha was there's a lot of the Old and New Testaments that aren't kind to dictators and kings. Oh, that is part of it. Yeah. Right? And and this idea that that we should just submit at every turn doesn't necessarily hold water with what would be our spiritual um uh, heritage, so to speak, right? Absolutely I mean, not. and I, I've often said sometimes we paint Christ in pastel colors, but keep in mind this is a guy who's pissing everybody off around him. Uh, the 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 religious structure of the day, as well as the political structure, absolutely. And so, uh, I, I think that that maybe certain books didn't make it in because it wasn't politically <laughs> expedient for for the dudes in charge. I know that even the Geneva Bible, which put a heavy emphasis on kind of, you know, uh, casting tyrants and kings in bad light, the the British hated that Bible. They're like, yeah, we don't use that. And certainly we discourage anybody from using a Geneva Bible for that very per reason, yeah. because it was, it was extremely anti-authoritarian. Yeah. You know, it, that's a, that's a thing that, uh, I think Latter-day Saints struggle with, to be honest, because, you know, is it the 11th article of faith? Says, yeah. We well, believe in being subject to kings, magistrates, rulers, and, right, and obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. But uh, our own Doctrine and Covenants says, has plenty of things like that too. Um, but there's always caveats to that. Yeah. It's and like, the Doctrine and Covenants makes ones, right? The, the whole purpose of, yeah. of government was to protect the rights of protect men. Protect the rights. And it says, um, it's like, I think it's section 134 or 135, um, says, that sedition is unbecoming of every citizen who is thus protected in their rights. Right. right. Like as long as you're protected in your rights, then sedition is a no-no. Right. But there is definitely an opening there for if your rights are being trampled though, then then God bless you, you know, yep. for resisting. You know, the story of the, the story of the Maccabees is really summed up nicely um, with 
um, Thomas Jefferson's motto, yep. uh, Benjamin Franklin, right? Uh, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can I get an amen? Yeah. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think we need to be very careful how we apply the 11th article of faith. Um, certainly, I'm not espousing for violence. Let's get that out of the way yeah. right now. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about kind of the the Gandhi approach or the Martin Luther King approach where you're you're saying take Nulli- me to jail. Nullification. Right, nullification, um peaceful resistance. Don't don't just toe the line. Yeah. Uh, I mean our own our own declaration says it's it's better to suffer with evils as long as the evils are sufferable. Exactly. The guys who want to go to violence right away always spook me because they really oh. they really don't know their history either, right? It wasn't like one day the founders woke up and went, you know, we should just start a war. No way. This was something that went on for decades <clears throat> before it got to that point where, where there was constant seeking for redress. So nobody be too quick to, to do that, please. But – no, there's a yeah. I've met folks who have crazy, who dangerous ideas yeah. like that. Like like who who believe that uh, that you know, that might makes right. Yeah. Like it's like no, no, no. Like rights come from God, God. and you no, know, that and they're like no rights come from whoever's Ugh. got you know the most guns or whatever. It's like yeah. oh no, yeah. Do, please don't do anything. <laughs> well, and furthermore, if you take that approach, that allows your belief that. Um, these rights are inalienable. It puts a time frame stamp on it, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're wiped out, that doesn't continue. But if you get on the side of God and say, "Look, these are from Him for us. No man can take these away." That's an idea. And unlike a charismatic figure, unlike um, a military leader, that will perpetuate long after he is dead. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, ideas you know, good ideas last longer than military might. Yep, absolutely. So so they, you you said they they begin to like all these things tend to do right. Once one guy starts it, some other people are like, yeah, I'm with that dude, That's and right. it, it picks up steam and momentum to the point where they they start getting armor and weapons and they get stronger and they eventually overthrow Antichias. They do. And it's, this is it's, where it's, the story of Hanukkah really It's absolutely incredible. In. There's just um, – there's so many miracles really that take place. Uh, it kind of culminates – like the last the last straw is uh, Antiochus basically sends half of his entire army to Judea. <laughs> and he actually, he actually takes the other half to Persia because he realizes that his, uh, the treasury is empty. So he needs to go to Persia to collect taxes, um, but he puts uh, Lysias, one of his governors or you know generals in charge, sends half of it, and they—it's actually uh, this kind of dire moment. Um, like all the the nations kind of around, like they they like hear that half of the Syrian Greek Syrian army is headed to uh, Jerusalem, and they all come uh, with money and chains. Because they're looking forward to like buying some slaves and stuff because they know there's going to be all these prisoners and stuff. And, you know, they just – all their hopes are are uh, trashed. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, immediately after that um, – and then the Greek threat is gone. Then Judah's 
immediate his immediately his attention turns back to the temple and they go there and the, everything is just in this grotesque disarray they they finish clearing the Jerusalem of the last you know Greek um, soldiers that are there and just set about repairing and cleaning up uh, the mess you know the <clears throat> so they take the uh, you know all the defiled stones for the altar and they don't know they actually don't know what to do with them because they're defiled but they're also the altar right so they decide well we're just gonna we'll just set those somewhere. Um, to the side, and when when a prophet comes, he can tell us what to do with those. But they they rebuild the altar and um, clean up everything. Start you know rebuild the stuff inside, and they're ready to dedicate it. And of course, they have uh, now now this this story about the uh, the miracle of the the oil, right, which Hanukkah is famous for, is actually not in uh, the books of Maccabees, either first or second Maccabees, um, but is a story that's. Uh, first told in the Talmud, um, which was, you know, written all, nearly 400 years later. So it's it's quite a late uh, recollection. And so there is kind of some, uh, some people doubt the truthfulness of this story. Okay. Um, but I don't, uh, I don't actually see any reason necessarily to, uh, well, there are reasons, but, but I actually like it. I, I like the, the story of the oil. Um, Partly because, uh, like Josephus, who was centuries before the Talmud, right? Josephus actually referred. Who, he, Josephus is like a, a contemporary of the New Testament uh, writers. Uh, he he calls Hanukkah the festival of lights. So, which is interesting that he doesn't call it the festival of oil. Well, well it's oil. It's oil is light, right? But he doesn't. Uh, it's actually the interesting thing is that. Uh, the focus of the holiday has been is on this miracle of the light of the oil and not on the military victories uh even though if you if you had to if i asked you which of these made a bigger difference in the world you know the the military victory of this you know this unlikely military victories of these you know farmers and stuff who take on the largest empire in the world at the time you know arguably rome was um, Rome was up and coming, but uh, one of the largest empires in the world, and uh, gain their independence, or um, this oil that burned a little longer than it should have. Like the the oil that burned a little longer than it should have didn't change the world. Like there's no history, the history books don't didn't deviate right. because of that. The history books did deviate in a big way because of the Maccabee family and their military exploits. So it's interesting that the the miracle of the oil and of course what was what was it? They they searched through, you know, the rubble, they're cleaning everything up and they find uh one vessel of oil that has that's sealed um that has the seal of the high priest on it and so they know it's uh not def- has not been defiled, which in and itself is is a miracle that just they were able to find that among you know, the, the rubble and the squalor that the temple had become. Now, this is to light the, the giant menorah. The giant right? menorah, which is in the holy place. Yeah, and, the seven-branched. Yeah, and, and this is to to essentially rededicate the house of the Lord, right? This is to that's right to bring, bring this back into acceptance before God, which 
I, I don't think Maccabees gets enough credit. I mean, they get all the credit for shooing out the the the, the Greeks. Yeah. But they much like our founders in some ways, right? There's several parallels there I'm looking at, but they go straight from we're spilling blood and we're at war to get rid of the dictator to now we have to rebuild. That's right. They they just yeah. switch that gear. And that's now we need we're we're doing this to serve God. Exactly. Exactly. Not for our own wealth or right power or fame. And and the reason I say it's interesting and kind of a parallel to the states is a lot of those men who who were the founders could have had the had the opportunity, not could have had, had the opportunity to install themselves as a new ruling the new aristocracy whatever it is but instead they're like okay now we got to build something better yeah. and you get that same feeling here from 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 the maccabees is okay we, we've done that now we need to restore what's been lost yeah. right i'm not concerned about my own power let's restore what was lost there's several places in uh the books of maccabees where judah maccabee is very much a uh captain moroni right. figure yeah. And he rallies his men uh, not over victory and spoil, but he tells them, we are fighting for our God and our families and our country and like just and our freedom. Like those are the those are the things like the exact things that Moroni puts on the title of liberty. Um, that's what that's what Judah Maccabees you know, rouses his troops with as well. This is the reason they're fighting. Yeah. So they 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 debate. um whether to just use up the oil they have and then and just get you know they're they're hungry for um they're hungry for uh being able to serve God, right? And um or so whether they do that and just let it burn out and then wait until they get more oil or to just uh, or to just wait. And that they're they're impatient and they're ready and and everything's set and so they decide to Light the lamp, yep, and it's uh, and then the miracle is that it should have burned for one day, but it burns for eight days until uh, they can procure some new oil, right? And then uh, then they keep it burning because it's a it's a commandment to keep it burning all the time. So uh, sometimes it sometimes we say sometimes we'll say it's the the miracle where the the oil lasted for eight days, um, but it's actually uh, the miracle actually lasted for seven days, right? Because the first day wasn't wasn't miraculous, right? right? Yeah. And so, um, but the first day was kind of little, and then the miracle was bigger. And so, um, I think there's a couple reasons why this oil is and the light has become kind of the focus, rather than the military victory. And part of it is uh, the military victory was extremely temporary. It right. was actually. Um, because the Romans are coming right behind them. Yep. The Romans are coming right behind them. Uh, and that happened. And even before that, um, like Mattathias' sons, uh, Judas is eventually, a- after they gained independence, there still were, uh, they had to maintain their independence. And so there was still battles. He eventually is killed. And, um, but by the time it gets to uh, Mattathias' last son, he is just, his youngest son, he's just fully uh, incorporates Greek ways of life. Uh-huh. And, and, um, and also they do, they do 
the Maccabees, basically the the kingly line, they actually they actually proclaim themselves kings, which they're not supposed to. They're they're the priestly line, um, but they they make themselves uh, like they make themselves wear two hats. They're like we are the high priest and we also are the king, and so they just have this um, consolidation of powers where there should have been a separation of powers between the the religious and the and the secular. Yeah, Deuteronomy is pretty clear on that. <clears throat> but they they just violate this, and um, and the whole everything just falls into total corruption. And again, the the office of high priest is just bought and sold, and people are murdered left and right. Um, I mentioned uh, Onias the third. He was kind of the last kind of legitimate high. He was he was really the last, in my view, the last legitimate high priest that Israel ever had in Jerusalem. Hmm. All the way up until Jesus's time, like these are just wicked people who were put into place for political things. Herod appoint Herod, who's also not even Israelite. Herod's Jewish or Herod's um Arab. Um. You know, he appoints Egyptians and Babylonian guys to be the high priest, and and uh, and people are just getting murdered left and right to become the king, and, and so it becomes all kinds less of fratricide, of, yeah. and it's just awful. It, I can't even describe how yeah, awful it is. It's it's less of a, a calling now and more of a political office. Yeah, and there's nothing to celebrate there, right? Because it just falls apart in a generation. But uh, the oil, though, that's something that's even though that didn't change history, uh, that's something. Like you want to know that, yet yes, there has not been a prophet for several centuries, and yet, uh, yet we know that God has not forgotten us. That He is He's still there. You know, God, God looks down and says, "Ah, I see you. You lit that. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna do a little something for you to let you know that I'm still there, and I see what you're doing. You know." Interesting um, in the uh, in Le- uh, Leviticus uh, twenty three. This is the this is a place where all of the all of the festivals throughout the year are kind of laid out, um, and they're laid out in the in order according to um, according to the year, like and how you know right. the order that the festivals arrive in. So you know on. Uh, uh, verse four it says, "These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which ye shall proclaim in their seasons." And then it starts with the fourteenth day of the first month is Passover, and then the fifteenth day is begins the feast of unleavened bread, and then it talks about first fruits, and then you go on to, um, uh, and then you go on to the uh, the the fifty days until uh, Pentecost, and and then um, you know, and then it talks about um, the seventh. Uh, let's see. In verse twenty four, it says, "In the in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, there will be Rosh Hashanah. You know, it will be the Feast of Trumpets, and then and then there's Yom Kippur, and then it describes uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, which we talked about um, last time. And then, interesting, uh, and then and then the chapter ends. Hmm. But uh, those chapter those chapter breaks are fairly recent. They are yeah. very recent. Yeah. yeah. So interesting that and not always put." In a spot we would think of as correct, uh, they are sometimes placed in a yeah, misleading way. Yeah. So um, if you keep reading uh, from Leviticus twenty three on to Leviticus twenty four, um, if 
if you were going to list the holidays that came, Hanukkah would be the next one. And if, of course, it's it's not mentioned uh, directly, but there is a, a beautiful hint at it. So uh, finish uh, Leviticus 23 with uh, tabernacles and then right in chapter 24, and the Lord spake unto Moses saying, command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil, uh, pure oil, olive beaten for the light to cause the lamps to burn continually. Wow. Without the veil, outside of the veil of testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation, shall Aaron order it from the evening unto the morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. And he shall order the lamps upon the pure candlestick before the Lord continually. So, so the very next thing after in the list of feasts, it says, and be sure you keep the the menorah burning all the time. Mm, so yeah, the Lord was mindful. Oh yeah, it, clear back then. Like we'll give them a hint; they won't get it right now. That's right. But but we'll give it. We'll put it in there so they know. Yeah, they look, was can look back on it and yeah. know that uh, I'm in charge. How is Hanukkah celebrated? How's today? it celebrated? Yeah. Um. So that's good. So the the main thing, <laughs> the main thing is. Uh, well, it's celebrated for eight days, okay. And why why eight days? Uh, well, it was was partly because uh, the oil, which I mentioned. But in in the books of uh, Maccabees, it actually they actually say that this is because the festival that they most recently missed out on was Sukkot Tabernacles, right. which was an eight day thing. Okay. So this was their belated you know belated um, Tabernacles, okay. basically. So. Um, so they celebrate that and then um, – so, okay. So with the miracle of the oil, so a common thing is to eat fried foods. So a deep fried food. So all oh, kinds of oh, – all oh, kinds oh. of everything that's uh, delicious, you know, donuts and, uh, you know, latkes are traditional, those potato pancakes, uh, which are really good. And anything else too. Like we're going we're gonna to have a party on uh, December 23rd. So I know it's – Close to Christmas, and people probably have a lot of family parties and stuff. But that'll be a Friday evening, um, and uh, we we picked that day because that's actually Joseph Smith's birthday. birthday yeah, which in uh, 1805, uh, that was the eighth day of Hanukkah. Okay, that Joseph Smith was born on, which is there's some interesting symbolism there uh, in and of itself. Like uh, there's verses in the Doctrine and Covenants that talk about when the when the time of the Gentiles comes in, there'll be a light that will break forth to those that sit in darkness. And so, of course, uh, Hanukkah is oftentimes it's, – it's in the winter. It's in December. Usually sometime it floats around, you know. But it's it's during this dark time of the year. And so – but then there's this light that breaks forth um, in in the rest, in the restoration. Right. And um, and this is – you know, the Hanukkah lights are if – you're, if you're a Mormon, then you can just take that symbolism and it fits perfectly with the restoration of the gospel. I'm sorry, you still have me at fried food. I'm still like, <laughs> wow. Yeah, so back to that. So, so on. So we usually have, uh, you know, we have this potluck, and we're like, everyone bring fried foods. So nice. There's latkes, donuts, French fries. You know, I'm gonna deep fry turkey, um, and there'll just be nice all manner of goodies. You know, nice. So, nice. Uh, you ever had deep fried Oreos? Uh, I have. Mm, I have not. So if you come, I hope that you'll bring those. Oh, you. <laughs> Yeah. So, and then we usually, um, you know, we'll read some, uh, we'll read some scriptures about, uh, 
you know, Jesus, Jesus celebrated the, this, a lot of people don't know this too, but that Jesus celebrated mm-hmm. Hanukkah. Yeah. It's in the New Testament. Actually, the New Testament is the, aside from the books of the Maccabees, the New Testament is the earliest reference we have. Because as I mentioned, the, the Talmud was written a couple hundred years after the New Testament. So the New Testament is the uh, the earliest reference. I've had people um, give me funny looks, you know, when I tell them that I celebrate Hanukkah and they're like, yeah, but that's like a, a Jewish thing and like Christians shouldn't be doing that. And I'm like, well, Jesus did. Dude, Here, here's the thing. I I had that very same thought and and I've mentioned him on the, the show before, my buddy Joel. He's like, there's nothing that says you, you have to be Jewish to observe these things. No. And he said, my dad, who was a devout rabbi, had instructed many Christians on how to keep those. And he 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 used to say, you know, Christianity, in his view, was the younger brother, so to speak, of, oh, absolutely. of, of Judaism, right? It is. And, and I make the assertion, you can't understand your— It's a continuation. Your, yeah. It, you can't understand your own Christian faith until you go back and you really look at that. Yeah, actually, the uh, you know first and second Maccabees are are only you know they're not they're not in Protestant Bibles, right? But they are in the Catholic Bible. Yep. Um, and uh, and they were in Protestant Bibles for a long time, too. Yep. Um, until uh, I believe the Apocrypha was taken out in 1885, right? Out of the King James Bible, and then of course it wasn't in any of the other NIV or anything like that as well. But uh, yeah, and it and not in the Jewish canon. Right. Uh, so the, um, now the Jews, um, the Jews back in Jesus's day, the, the, the early Christians, they had the Apocrypha because they had the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek version of the scriptures that was written about this time. Oh, so many, so many loose ends. I haven't tied up. Let me, let me read this in sure, uh, John first. I keep distracting you. No, no. Uh, it's Hanukkah is actually kind of an overwhelming thing. There's so much to talk about. It's, it's really amazing. So this is in John chapter 10, verse 22. Now, um, it's it's traditional. Another thing to celebrate, uh, one of the traditional things that's done is to read uh, Ezekiel 34, hmm. which uh, where the Lord is talking about how he is against the shepherds of Israel because the shepherds are just abusing the flock and enriching themselves. Um, and uh, that someday he's going to send a good shepherd. And um, so Jesus actually starts off chapter 10 talking about, um, like verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd for the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And he talks about the hirelings and how they don't, they don't actually take care of the sheep and all of that. And then, uh, and then it says it was, it was that Jesus gives this um, sermon um, at Jerusalem. Verse 22 says at Jerusalem, uh, the feast at the feast of dedication, and it hmm. was winter. Now it says dedication there, and so people maybe don't catch it. But uh, the dedication of the temple. The Hebrew word Hanukkah means dedication. That okay. is, so the festival of Hanukkah is the festival of dedication because they rededicated uh, the temple gotcha. at that time. So um, and it was winter, right? So um, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. So he was there at the temple for Hanukkah. And uh, telling, you know, they had been reading Ezekiel chapter 34 and he tells them, hey, I'm the good shepherd. Right. 
Oh, so he's 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 proclaiming again the prophecies fulfilled. That's right. And it's actually interesting because at this because of all of the uh because of what they expected the Messiah to do, which was throw off the Romans. And this is at Hanukkah time. And so uh you know there's like they're they're basically expecting the Messiah to be Judah Maccabee. Right. And do the same thing that Judah did to the Greeks to the Romans. Right. And so they actually ask him right then after he says uh, he's there for the feast of dedication for Hanukkah and says the Jews round about him said unto him, how long do you make us doubt? If you be the Messiah, tell us plainly, like tell us, like just tell us up straight, straight up. Jesus answered, I told you and you believe not the works that I do in my father's name. They bear witness of me, but ye believe not because ye are not my sheep. So he's like saying, I am the good shepherd, but if you don't believe me, I'm, then you're not my sheep. I'm not the right. guy. I'm not the guy for you that you're, that you are looking for, right. but my sheep do hear my voice and, and I am here. Right. So, so there's the, uh, there's the first reference to uh celebration of Hanukkah. Um, so there's, so there's a good reason, um, to, uh, celebrate it. So where do the candles fit in? Yeah, yeah, good question. You know, this goes uh, this goes to the idea of the miracle of the oil and the lights, right? There's many miracles that happened, but um, the one that gives it its name, the Festival of Lights, is because of the uh, the oil that burned for eight days. Which that's was, a menorah, right? That's a menorah. That's okay. right. And I'm glad you uh, you knew that. The menorah is actually the name of the candelabra that's in the temple, and it's a seven branched menorah. Seven-branched uh, candlestick, <clears throat> but uh, the the candle the candelabra that's used for Hanukkah is called a Hanukkah menorah, or more more formally, it's called a Hanukkiah. So we have a menorah that's a seven-branched, and the Hanukkiah is actually a nine-branched uh, candlestick. And the reason why it's nine, it has it has um, well, it's, it actually looks very similar. You've you've probably seen them before, but the one in the temple, the seven branch one, it has kind of a central one that's a little taller than the right. rest, and then it's got three on each side on the left and the right. The Hanukkah is similar design, but it has has one that's a little higher, uh, usually in the middle, although not always, and then um, kind of four branches on each side. And those four branches on each side for a total of eight branches, those are for the eight days of Hanukkah. But then they have, it's really interesting because there's that one that one candle that is elevated above the rest, and that holds the candle that is called the shamash. And the shamash is the servant candle. And that, uh, on each night of Hanukkah, on the first night of Hanukkah, you'll put uh, one candle in the first branch, and then also a candle in the higher elevated uh, shamash spot, the servant spot, yeah. And then that's lit, lit first, and then that candle uh, the sham- the shamash uh, comes down and lights the other candles. You know, there's there's so much symbolism you can draw from that, right? I mean, my first thought is is that I think that sets a pattern for us. Those who have been received the gospel, right? We've received the light. We need to be passing that out. Absolutely. And and I can't think of a better time of year to do that. Look, whether you celebrate Hanukkah or Christmas everybody's a little happier. Everyone's oh, yeah. a little more willing to to talk about what they believe in. 
And and you got to love that season. It's kind of a season fact. of openness. It is, and and of, of charity and love. Absolutely. And and I always felt like, uh, as as uh, as a guy who kind of loves this time of year, and I mean it's a big deal around our house. We go all out. It's not for <laughs> amateurs, right? Good. Um, it, it's one of those times where I feel like, as as disciples of Christ, we might have a greater responsibility to spread His light this Absolutely. time of year, and and and. Uh, I, I never knew that, and, and so you described this idea of, of a servant candle. Yeah, right. I think it's beautiful. So it's um, you know as as Christians, we can certainly we should certainly think about the times when Jesus said, "I am the light and the life of the world. I'm I'm the light that came into the world." I, in John chapter one, he says, "I am." Uh, you know, John says that Jesus is the light that lights every man. Right, and we have we're all entitled to this light of Christ, which is a source of guidance and revelation uh, for every person who comes into the world, and you know that the source of that light for us, uh, you know, comes through Christ, and so uh, he is uh, he is the ultimate servant who has condescended or come down right. to share the light, uh, you know, with as the Son of God with his brethren here on. On earth right um, so there is that aspect and then I love what you said I was going to bring that up too is that uh, once we are lit then we are also candles for the Lord you know um, Proverbs chapter 20 uh, I don't remember the verse I think so anyway in Proverbs chapter 20 it says um, that the, the spirit of man is the, the candle of the Lord like okay. that we are light we are we are his lights his representatives and um, on the earth, and in a real way, we are—we uh, bear the image of God, and we are supposed to hold that up as as a light to the world. You know, Jesus says um, to uh, not to put your candle under a bushel. Right. right. Yeah. The uh, uh, Gospel of Matthew was originally written in Hebrew, and it's the, the the Hebrew there is Jesus says, "Don't put your menorah under a bushel, but you know, set it out." Um, on the table where it will give light to everyone in the room, and so and so there's a there's a real call for us to to be both grateful for the light that we have received and also uh, to remember that that kind of responsibility that we have to share that light to pass it along right. with those around us. Yeah, and we can think of both those things. So yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Um, is there any other symbolism that goes with that? Uh, you know, that's the; <clears throat> those are the main things. Then, and then, of course, um, and then, of course, as I said, it's there are um, eight branches, and so, so each um, each night, um, and this is this is tradition. Of course, it's not laid out in Maccabees or in sure. the anywhere, but it's a beautiful tradition. Um, on the first night, uh, there will be one candle plus the shamash. Second night, there'll be two candles plus the shamash, and three and four, and so each night the light just uh, is growing. And, um, and you know, that's, that's just a, that's a kind of a symbolic hope as well, that we hope that, you know, that the, I mean, the scriptures are full of images like this. We hope for the kingdom of God to grow and to spread. And we hope for that, that little stone that was cut out of the mountain to roll and to grow larger and larger. And we hope that the light will get brighter and brighter. And we know that, you know, the darkness is, is getting deeper and deeper as well. But 
but uh, but ideally, uh, the children of light, as the scriptures right. call us, will be able to keep up with and um, fend off those powers of darkness and spread the light in spite of this increasing darkness. And it's, it's interesting too because just the the time of year, of course, is yeah is in the winter and it's and it's near the solstice. It's not always it's not on the solstice. Um, but it's Hanukkah is near the solstice, and so like the days are getting darker and darker. But we are adding a candle every night, and it's getting brighter and brighter. And another tradition about the the Hanukkah actually, and this goes with the uh, this commandment that Jesus gives us to to share our light. the The tradition is that um, the Hanukkah is not not supposed to be set up, you know, uh, you know, inside your inside your house somewhere where no one can see it. You're supposed to put it like on the windowsill, right? So that everyone passing by can look and see light coming out of your house, um, so to speak, literally, not yeah. so to speak. But. Yeah. And so that's, that's, you know, there's beautiful things about that, too. You know, and one of the things, too, is that, and, and it always becomes more pronounced around this time of year, Christmas and Hanukkah, is that it doesn't take a lot of light to make the darkness flee. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, as it gets darker, yeah. light becomes more pronounced. Yeah, it does. And and sometimes I think we sell ourselves short that, that maybe we're not doing enough, but sometimes just being us, right, is yeah. and, and doing the best we can will not only light our way, but we don't know who whose way it will light. Yeah, amen. I mean, it's uh, it does. Uh, you said it perfectly, um, especially when it's dark. Right. And I think we're coming... Light stands out in an amazing way. Yeah, and I think we're coming into a time where it's going to take all of us to be lit, so to speak. That's lit in a spiritual way, not an alcoholic <laughs> kind of way. But lit lit in a way that uh, I just immediately... This is horrible. I just immediately had visions of everyone going to booze. But anyway, for, for us to be enlightened, right, mm-hmm. to, by, by the Lord's countenance so that we can spread that around to those who are in need. Yeah, because they're going to go somewhere, right? As it gets darker, they'll either fall into the darkness, or we can be the light to be like, "Don't go that way. There's no need." Yeah, we can go this way. There's a, there is a. Uh, humans are complex, you know. Oh yeah. We're, we're not like we're not like moths. We're just kind of blindly attracted to light and flames. But but there is kind of a metaphor there, and and you know everyone knows that feeling of. Um, coming out of the cold into the warmth or out of the darkness into light. And there's, there's comfort there. And there's definitely something both like physically satisfying, but also spiritually satisfying that, that we, we want some light. Yeah. And, um, and uh, I think there could be more, but people are, people are afraid sometimes. They, they are. And to and, share it. Yeah. But. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, that's really the trick is getting over that fear. Yeah. Now there's um we are having our our party on the 23rd. Um but on the 18th, so this is the on the Zarahemla calendar. Mm-hmm. This is going to be the day before. This is the Sunday. Um 18th is Sunday. So at uh in the afternoon and this will be on the, the website too. But we're going to we're actually going to make candles. So nice. I don't know if you've ever dipped, you know. Dipped, I have not. I have not dipped, had dipped the candles. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to we're going to um uh, we're gonna dip a whole set of Hanukkah candles, you know, for anyone who wants to. And I don't remember off the top of my head now, but it's you know, it's you need two on the first night, and then three, 
four, five, right. six, seven. So whatever that adds up to, it's forty or fifty candles, something like that. Wow. That you know you need for a full for one Hanukkah to have all the candles you need. So that's anyway, awesome. So that's kind of a fun activity um, for the kids and stuff. So. Absolutely. Oh, that sounds great. Other thing is the, uh, eating uh, cheese or dairy things. So also good, right? Deep fried stuff and dairy. Like what could what could be better than that? The reason why um, I'm all in. I'm gonna have to buy some tums. But <laughs> so I'm we need all some in. like yeah, <laughs> trying to bring some uh, mozzarella sticks. Right. Like that's you get the best of both. The reason why they do that is there's actually three three books in the apocrypha that are related to uh, the story uh, to the Maccabees. Well. Uh, maybe more. It kind of depends, actually. There's uh, there's different versions of the Septuagint that were around anciently, and not all Christian uh, denominations agree on what the the apocryphal books are supposed to be. They're sometimes called the deutero- deuterocanonical books, mm-hmm. the second canon. Right. So anyway, it's about fifteen to eighteen books, but uh, um. In the in the King James Apocrypha, there was first and second Maccabees, but in some of the other um, some of the other uh, you know Eastern Orthodox, I think has there's like a third and a fourth Maccabees as well, which are kind of related to the story as well. But the other anyway, long story short, the other the other book that's in the Apocrypha is the Book of Judith, and uh, so she's traditionally she is the uh, niece of uh, Judah Maccabee, and she's a widow. And uh, she basically single-handedly uh, saves her little city from the the Assyrian army. That's hmm. um, have you heard of Judith or the story of Judith before? Huh. Oh, so um, she's kind of she's this uh, female uh, heroine, like kind of like Esther or um, Yael. You know the story of Yael in right. Uh, Judges, right, where she like pounds a stake through the guy's head while he's sleeping. Um, it's kind of it's kind of that kind of story, but she. She's very beautiful. She's a widow. The cities, I'll give you the short version here. The cities uh, is um, uh, being, uh, what's it called when they barricade uh, and they like try to starve oh, them siege. out? Siege, yeah. They're under siege. Thank you. And so she, uh, and their food's running out and they're going to. Going to die. Going to die. So she, uh, the, the elders in the city, they say, unless God does something to save us in five days, we're going to surrender. And she like chastises them and says, how can you put a timetable on God? Like you should not do this. You should be faithful and wait for God to do it whenever he's ready. But she has, she has an idea. So um, she actually leaves the, the camp. She brings her maid with her and um, she brings a bunch of uh, food that she can, she brings a bunch of like cheese and uh, wine and she goes to the Assyrian camp and asks to see their general and basically tells him, um, I'm going to help you take the city. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to, and this is how it's going to happen. So they're under siege. They're running out of food. At some point, they're going to start eating pigs and horses, um, and unclean stuff because they're running out of food. And when they do that, then they will be breaking God's commandments and then he won't bless them. But you have to wait until that happens. Otherwise you won't, you know, God will be with them and you won't be able right. to take so the general, his name's Holofernes, he says, okay, great. This is great. Uh, he tells everyone in his camp, leave these two women alone. And they, they're they going to go back to the town, back and forth in between the town and the camp every day to find out news of when they're running out of food or whatever. So she does this for a couple of nights, goes back and forth. 
And, um, and then finally she tells, she tells the general, she's like, Hey, they're, they're going to be, they've just run out of food. And so, um, it's, it's only going to be like two days from now. They're going to, starvation is going to push them towards uh, breaking the commandments. And then you'll be able to take the city. And he's like, great, this is great. Let's celebrate. And, and he invites her to dinner in his tent and, um, and, and he wants, he wants, she's beautiful and he wants to seduce her as well. Mm-hmm. And, and she knows that she's kind of playing the seductress. And so she says, Oh, I'd love to join you for this party. And she's, she, she pulls out her basket of cheese and she's like, this is my homemade cheese. It's the best. And, and look, this is my homemade wine. And, and Holofernes tells all his, his men to like leave the tent cause he wants to be alone with her. Right. And, and she like basically stuffs him full of cheese and gets him, uh, slobbering drunk with this wine that she made and he passes out and uh, she rolls him onto his stomach and pulls out his sword and cuts off his head while he's asleep and then puts it in the basket where all the cheese was. And then just like walks out of the tent quietly and no one disturbs her. And she runs to the town and says, everyone get ready to go attack the the Syrian army right now because uh, you, you need to like attack them at the, the first light of, of day they will not be expecting it and uh and also i have the head of the general and so like they do like they they go attack the syrians and they like go to holofernes uh tent they're like general general they're coming no answer no answer open it the headless general is on and then and they just scatter in fear and and uh, disarray and so tell you what people often say they don't read the scriptures because they find them boring and i'm like man that there's some straight up gangster stuff <laughs> in in the scriptures right like there there's some straight up you know action film kind of stuff so in there. Uh, yeah so judith is the saves the day there and so eating cheese is also that's awesome part of, is on the on the menu for nice, hanukkah nice all right well, dude, that's that's good stuff. I, I'll, I'll definitely be there for the twenty third. That sounds that sounds fun. What would we miss? Would we gloss over and in me constantly distracting you with my questions? And no, stuff? you did good. Oh, I was I was going to mention one last thing. Sure. Um, one of the reasons why, um, you know, Martin Luther and other Protestants didn't really like the Apocrypha was because of Second Maccabees, and that was and that was kind of understandable because. Um, you know Martin Luther with the ninety five theses he saw this these abuses that were happening with indulgences and part of the part of the abuse was that the Pope was basically saying, "Hey, if you give me some more money, then I'll give you a little certificate that says that your relative can take some time off of their sentence in purgatory Wow, you know yeah, and so he did not like. He saw these tremendous abuses um, and basically the Pope like holding the salvation of people's dead relatives over them in order to milk money out of them, right? So he did not like that. But in uh, – he basically said – Martin Luther's like, we can't, we can't do anything for the dead. We have no power over their salvation or whatever. But in, uh, in Second Maccabees chapter 12, I think – Um, there's this, uh, there's this episode. I'm just going to read it. Sure. Um, it's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, if you're a Mormon, you'll appreciate this obviously. So after the, uh, so there's this battle 
Um, so they, let's see. Yeah. After the battle, Judas led his men. This is in verse 38 of chapter 12, like I said. Second Maccabees. After the battle, Judas led his men to the town of Adullam. It was the day before the Sabbath. So they purified themselves according to Jewish custom and they observed the holy day. Um, by the following day, it was urgent that they gather up the bodies of the men who had been killed in battle and bury them in their family tombs. Now, this is interesting because they, um, like Judah and his men, they had kind of some uh, stripling warrior kind of battles where like no one was injured. Like they just killed hundreds of Greeks and not a single one of them hmm. was injured. So in this this particular battle, it's talking about, is again, like pretty much everyone was unscathed, but there was like this handful of guys who died. So anyway, so um, so it was urgent that they gather up the bodies of the men who had been killed in battle and bury them in their family tombs. But on each of the dead, hidden underneath their clothes, they found small images of the gods worshipped in Jamina, which the law forbids Jews, Jews to wear. So they had these little idols around sure. their neck, right? And so... Um, so they praised the ways of the Lord, the just judge who reveals what is hidden. And they and uh, they begged him that this sin might be completely blotted out. So they're praying for the dead. Then Judas, that great man, urged the people to keep away from sin because they had seen for themselves what had happened to those men who had sinned. And he also took up a collection from all his men, totaling about four pounds of silver, and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. Judas did this noble thing because he believed in the resurrection of the dead. And if he had not believed that the dead would be raised, it would have been foolish and useless to pray for them. But in his firm and devout conviction that all of God's faithful people would receive a wonderful reward, Judas made provision for a sin offering to set free from their sin those who had died. Wow. So he's basically doing um, vicarious, you know, vicarious work for, for the, the dead, dead, but he's but they're doing um, you know the Aaronic ordinances. Right. But they said, yeah, but they're doing sacrifice, you know, sin offerings uh, vicariously see, for these men. That's so cool, and and that's one of those things where it's like, I, I and I've said for a long time, it's one of the reasons I love talking to Ken Peterson and 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 you know Hannah Stoddard is that as Mormons we have every right and every reason to believe that our faith is historical, right? And that just. That just shows there. For so long, we hung vicarious work on the dead alone on what Paul says about, you know. Right. And Corinthians about But baptism. you have it all the way back in the, te- you know, in the te- temple. Yeah. Absolutely. In the Old Testament period, vicarious work for the dead. As Mormons, we should expect to see that. And I, th- I think as more and more books, and this is the other thing people forget about the Apocrypha, it's growing all the time. As we discover yes. more and more ancient texts, it's growing all the time. And so in doing so, we're starting to see certain Mormon teachings being brought to the forefront in ancient documents. Um, yeah. I, I think Amen. it's it's absolutely awesome. So, Okay. Awesome. That's all I've got, I think. Well, I, I just want to wrap up with this is that we all have – Holidays that that are familiar to us because that's how we were brought up, right? Right. Those Jewish ones, maybe not so much. But I see no reason at all where where you can't have Christmas and Hanukkah too. Yeah. There is nothing there that, that tells me that, that those things can't go together and have crossover in, in no symbology. No Christmas without Hanukkah. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> absolutely. And, and so I know I have certainly been – enriched as as I've studied out these 
these the the Jewish calendar because so many of them walk hand in hand. Um, I I think you can definitely see God putting types and shadows here until we got a better handle on things. And and so this season, just read Second Maccabees. It's an inspiring story. I mean, it's it's the kind of story Mel Gibson was trying to get. (laughs) He was he was trying to get a Maccabees movie. Oh really? Oh, it would make a great movie. It'd make a great movie. It's very Braveheart esque, right? Absolutely. And so I, 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 in doing research for this episode, I I found that that he's got a full script that's waiting for someone to want to. That's cool. Yeah. So I mean. Get out your dreidels. Yes. That's another thing I forgot about celebration. The dreidels, of course, dreidel game, you know, there's, has the Hebrew letters on it. And um, the Hebrew letters are actually an acronym for a sentence. Okay. There's a, there's a noon, gimel, hey, and a shin. Okay. So those are the the four letters around it. But it stands for a Hebrew sentence. Nase, gadol, haya, sham. Nase is miracle. Gadol is great. Haya is um, occurred or was, and sham means there. So the the when you nice. spin the dreidel, it says it, it goes around and around and around, saying a great miracle happened there. Huh. So that's the that's <clears throat> awesome. Anyway, you can look up the rules. Uh, yep. yep. But it, it's a fun game. We like to play it, and uh, that's awesome. Anyway. All right. So good stuff. So uh, the uh, the Hanukkah party on the twenty third. Yep. And they can get all that info at uh, the Zarahemla Facebook page, I assume? Yep. Yeah. I don't know if it's been posted yet. Uh, probably has been. But it'll probably be – we'll probably start, uh, you know, five or six in the evening. And Awesome. And the first and second book of Maccabees, that's where they can that's read all about it. And the book of Judith also and the book highly of recommend. Judith. Okay. And then what about if someone is interested in kind of keeping Hanukkah? Where they Where can they find information on that? Yeah. Again, I'll, I mean, I'll say the same things I've kind of said before. There's a um, this website called Hebrew for Christians. Okay. That's uh, really good, and um, and there's a number of other books uh, that you can get that just have kind of a kind of a brief beginner's uh, synopsis of the biblical feasts, and you know, even biblical feasts from a Christian point of view. And there, there's a number of excellent ones. So just awesome. go on Amazon or whatever. Awesome. All right. Well, dude, that that's great. Next one's Purim. And that's right. Oh, it's let me ask Esther. Let, let me ask you this question. When is Hanukkah this year? So it's uh, you know, I was afraid you were going to ask that. Um, I, I want to say that it starts on the uh, about the 18th of December. Okay. And goes to goes through like the 25th or 26th maybe. So there, it, there you go. They overlap yeah. overlaps with Christmas this year. Nice. Um so I don't have the exact dates, but it's it's about that. Okay. You can find that online yeah. too real yeah. easily. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, go go read Maccabees. Get I, I feel like that book too is really good to read towards the end of the year, those books, because it kind of fires you up and gets you ready for yeah, whatever yeah, is yeah. coming the next year. But all right, Joshua, dude, it's always awesome. I appreciate it's it. Pleasure. Man. All right. Bye everybody.